The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading to the town of Viseria, which is once again under siege by undead creatures from beyond the grave. When Dr. Neiman, a deranged scientist obsessed with the work of Henry Frankenstein, escapes from prison with his hunched-backed assistant, he makes his way across Europe, assembling a coterie of monsters to help him build a creation of his own and exact revenge on those who imprisoned him. Grab your torches, pitchforks, silver bullets, and a steak or two, and join us as we discuss House of Frankenstein. To a new world of gods and monsters. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about 1944's House of Frankenstein. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my hunchbacked co-host, Monster Mike Manzi. How you doing, Mike? Hey, how's it going? It's funny you should say that because there is a hunchback named Daniel in this movie. So we got the invisible Dan and Daniel the Hunchback tonight. Yeah, I did briefly consider switching that around. But yes, we do have a hunchback named Daniel, and I love that. Yeah, and uh, no, no offense to you, Dan, or nothing like that, but such a plain name for a hunchback back once again you know i missed the days of the fritz and the igor <laughs> you know now we have dan i was gonna say maybe if we had dwight fry playing this hunchback assistant he would have gotten a much more fun colorful name but you know hey daniel works it's a biblical name <laughs> so mike you know what's better than just one or two monsters three monsters yeah. After the incredible success of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Universal realized their iconic monsters' strength in numbers and decided to hedge their bets and produce films that would put more of these characters on the big screen together. The resulting films, House of Frankenstein and 1945's House of Dracula, are lean, mean, somewhat nonsensical, star-studded greatest hits compilations featuring Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, and Dracula. Curiously absent are the Mummy and the Invisible Man, who for some reason, never make an appearance in these monster rallies. And I'm not really sure why. Considering the strength of these movies is pretty much their cast of characters, why wouldn't you make full use of everybody you've got? Instead, we get a mad doctor and a hunchback assistant in both House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but script-wise, virtually everything here is recycled material from films we've already seen. We've got another ill-fated mad scientist trying to continue Henry Frankenstein's work. Poor Larry Talbot has once again been brought back to life and still just wants to die <laughs> and dracula more or less exists here to transform into a bat and drink the blood of the living etc etc but despite all of that 
I can't deny that it is really fun to see so many of our favorite actors on screen together in one movie. Now, Mike, I'm not sure your history of this movie. Did you enjoy it? What do you think? Yeah, so this is the first time I've seen this in its entirety. I had seen parts and bits, but never all the way through before. So this was a lot of fun. It's not what you would expect. It is, for the most part, a sequel to Frankenstein It's the Wolfman with a little bit of Dracula sort of thrown in there. And it has the type of structure that I generally don't like, like would bother me. But for some reason, when it comes to horror, this feels almost, almost like a universal anthology film. Right. If they visited one more monster town and (laughs) like ran into a mummy or something, it could be almost like Karloff was the through line to doing um, these sort of short versions of each of these little films here you get like three separate stories but as it is we get two they are packed to the gills i really appreciated sort of the rapid fire pace of all of this makes me wonder if they could have squeezed a little bit more in here or there and yeah overall i really had a lot of fun with this i enjoyed it very much it's at the same time very cheeky but also very serious at times like it it plays extremely well for not necessarily like a parody but it's very self-aware, much more than I expected it to be for its time. Yeah, overall, a lot of great monsters in here. Awesome performances, beautiful camera work. Had a lot of fun with it. I generally feel the same way as you do. I think that in years past, when I would watch all of these in quick succession, this one was a little bit disappointing. But now that we're watching them, you know, one at a time, one per month, and I have a little more time to process them, this one played much better for me this time around. I mean, we've already sort of accepted that Universal is kind of going through the motions with these characters. You know, they have no qualms with recycling old plot points and whatnot. So once you accept that, that that's what Universal's doing, I think that this movie really opens up and it becomes much more enjoyable. Like I said, everything in this movie is kind of recycled from somewhere. It is very much a sequel to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. If there's anything that feels wonky, Dracula feels kind of shoehorned into a story where he may not really be utilized to maximum capacity, but he's in the movie and it's John Carradine. So, you know, I'm happy to see him. And I think that he really does a lot with his short amount of screen time as Dracula. And I'm left wanting more of that. So I guess that's definitely a good thing. But this is definitely not like the Avengers of the Universal Monsters, right? Like when (laughs) when you hear they're going to put a bunch of characters together, you know, in modern day, the Avengers is like sort of the reference point for that. And I'm watching it and I'm like, yeah, no, it's not really that. It's a Frankenstein story and it's a Wolfman story with Dracula and they don't team up ever. Dracula's gone before the halfway point. Yeah. If they were to make it today, it would be entirely different. But I do really enjoy this one. This might sound like a negative criticism, and and maybe it is, but I don't mean it as harshly, but like the inherent laziness of this script. The script only really serves to bring these characters together. It's not really trying to do anything new with them. So it doesn't really take any bold risks, but it's, it's a good comfort movie. This is something that like on a Saturday, if you just wanted to put on an old monster movie, I think that this is a solid choice. It gives you everything you want from these characters. And, and it's just all around really fun. Yeah, like I, I agree with a lot of that. You know, I guess I, I was expecting something more along the lines of Monster Squad or even when Abbott and Costello run into all these guys, right? Even then Dracula meets 
Frankenstein's monster. You know? Yeah. So it's a little awkward how separate he is from the rest of it. Uh, he's almost a cameo. He's almost mm-hmm. serves as like a henchman. I almost wonder if it's the true Dracula in the head cannon that I'm making up as I go along. <laughs> sure. all this, you know, knowing that son of Dracula is uh, at the bottom of uh, swamp somewhere in America at this moment, supposedly. But this show has like a great sideshow spirit to it you know Mm -hmm. and like how lampini is in this movie it like drags out all of its attractions one by one and takes you through the tent and you know exposes you to all of the the little things that make each of these characters so great and and what we love about them so they all get their moment to shine everybody gets like a transformation everybody gets to kill somebody i definitely agree with the script it is completely just to serve the purpose of trying to figure out a way of getting all these guys on screen at once because the main thread of like Boris Karloff's revenge mm-hmm. is totally forgotten along the yes. way. Like I'm constantly going, when are you going to get back to your kill list? Like what? <laughs> and, yeah. and then we'll get to the very end of it, but like, you know, brains are left in jars and sitting on the shelf at the yep. end of this movie. So I agreed there too. And I got over a lot of that very quickly and it didn't bother me because the spirit of this movie is uh, is a lot of fun. And so I had a lot of fun watching it and I'm, and I'm looking forward to uh, discussing it more. I really like that carnival sideshow analogy. I think that that's completely describes this movie in the way that it's structured and how everything rolls out. So yeah, great job with that. Now I kind of like this movie a little more because of that, thinking of it that way. Okay, let's get into it. On June 7th, 1943, The Hollywood Reporter released news that Universal had begun development on a project called Chamber of Horrors, which boasted its own all-star cast of characters, including the Invisible Man, the Mad Ghoul, the Mummy, and, quote, other assorted monsters. I have no idea who those other monsters would have been. I assume they probably would have been characters like the, quote, Hunchback and the Mad Scientist were added to this one. They're, you know, they're not specific characters. But I get what they're doing. So George Wagner was announced as the producer and the cast was a veritable who's who of actors of the era, including Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., Bela Lugosi, Peter Lorre, Claude Rains, George Zucco, Henry Hull, and James Barton. Now this film was never made, but I feel like that is more of like Universal Monster Avengers, right? Like true, yeah, yeah, yeah. bringing all of these actors together. I mean, these are some heavy hitters. Yeah, you could even have like the Invisible Man as the scientist, like wrangling them all together. Yeah. In the way that Karloff is in this movie. Just quickly, you mentioned Bella. Man, I kind of miss Bella. Like, I'm glad he doesn't have to do just this, but I look forward to seeing him as Dracula again. For sure. You know, I don't know if he would have come back to play Dracula. I don't know if he would have been back as Igor. You know, like he's played two iconic Universal Monster characters. Three. He played the monster as well. That's right. We get a new guy here with Glenn Strange, so. It's funny to me to keep hearing Bella's name come up, knowing how much he really wanted to like be Dracula and regain that status as a horror icon. But like he keeps getting really close to it and then keeps getting denied. Every time Universal had something, it just never worked out or he got recast and he ended up down on Poverty Row making bullshit. It's cool to know that Bella was up for another role, but at the same time also kind of sucks that he didn't get it. Yeah, and it's tough too when you got someone like Carradine who now three movies in a row yeah. Is like just knocking dingers out the park as far as I'm concerned. Like yeah. completely different character, totally different demeanor, really tried to make this his own. So not to discredit what he's doing at all. 
No, no, absolutely not. Now, I've, I've read that there's speculation over whether or not this was a legitimate scoop to begin with. It's possible that The Hollywood Reporter fabricated something based on very little evidence. Wouldn't surprise me. I don't think The Hollywood Reporter has changed all that much in 80 years or, or whatever. Yeah, I think of like Danny DeVito in L.A. Confidential, where he's like running around trying to get scoops. Yep. And he's just making shit up. So it's entirely possible that this project was never really that close to happening. But it's possible that there was a project called Chamber of Horrors. But by August 1943, Universal had officially begun preparing for what would eventually become House of Frankenstein. At the time, the title was The Devil's Brood. See, all these titles are nice, but you got to have Frankenstein or Dracula or something in the title. Like, And I, and I like that they're using the house yes prefix there and they're going to come back to it again i think of it this way like you said it's it, this is very much a frankenstein sequel or a frankenstein meets the wolfman sequel so it's still very much like a frankenstein movie and so it's a frankenstein movie with these other characters included and now when we get to house of dracula if memory serves that is a dracula forward story with other characters so yeah i, I definitely like the name convention of house of wish they had done more of that but the original working title was the devil's brood so i said they began preparing for that in August 1943, but it wasn't until February of 1944 that a cast was assembled. Paul Malvern, a former acrobatic performer and stuntman turned producer, took the reins on this project and assigned prominent roles to Boris Karloff, who was fulfilling the second half of a two-picture deal, receiving $20,000 for his work here. Lon Chaney Jr., who was paid $10,000. Now, I don't often get salary, so I was really excited to, to include these here. John Carradine and J. Carroll Nash were each given $7,000. Lionel Atwill and George Zucco were paid $1,750 and $1,500 respectively. And poor Glenn Strange only received $500 for his performance as the monster. He does the least, so he gets paid less. <laughs> We're going to get to it. But what's funny to me is that Glenn Strange's image as the monster is like far more popular than Boris Karloff's at this point. When you see Frankenstein merch, I have a t-shirt I bought from Old Navy, I believe. It's a Frankenstein t-shirt and it says the original horror show, like it's the original movie, but it's got Glenn Strange's face on it. I have heard that, yeah, the key art from Glenn Strange's Frankenstein has been used several times mistakenly. Yes. They, they think it's Karloff, but it's Glenn Strange and they're using it in their promos and stuff. So I think I have this note someplace else but I may as well just share it now. I think I read somewhere that the New York Times mistakenly ran Glenn Strange's photo for Boris Karloff's obituary. Yes, I've heard that as well. I heard that on the Gilbert Godfrey podcast. Yes. <laughs> so yes, Glenn Strange kind of gets the short straw here. He only gets $500 and he only gets a little bit to do towards the end of the movie. However, he ends up kind of being the most famous Frankenstein monster in that sense, in that his, his image or his likeness gets used so much. It looked a lot to me like Herman Munster. And now yeah. you may not think there's a big difference between, you know, original flavor and Herman Munster, but I just got way more of that refinement of everything. Okay, so Kurt Siodmak, he receives a story credit here. It's not terribly surprising considering his fascination with brain transplants, which we have covered previously on the pod. I had to draw like a little graph to keep everything straight for this one. I'm just going to have a nightmare based on one idea mentioned in this movie early on. According to him, he never even saw the movie. I think this was just sort of a paycheck for him. He, he provided a story. He didn't write a script. And for his effort with coming up with this story, he took the money and ran. And that was the end of it. 
The screenplay was written by Edward T. Lowe, whose previous credits include The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923 and The Vampire Bat in 1933. So he does have some horror cred, especially with working with Lon Chaney Sr. in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was definitely a working writer at the time, but like those were the, the credits that I felt were most relevant to this show. So once completed, Lowe's script, which was titled Destiny, was submitted to Joseph Breen's office at the Production Code Association for approval. It passed under the condition that a cap was placed on excessive gruesomeness, emphatic religious references, and suggestive gypsy dancing, Mm. among the usual stuff. They didn't take the note on the excessive gypsy dancing, did they? But they did leave a lot of stuff off screen, and there was a very sort of tasteful blockage of some violence when we get to it. I thought that was pretty interesting blocking. Apparently, they were particularly critical of Professor Lampini's death, suggesting that the production avoid or tone down the character's choking cry and dying groan. Oh, but they had no problem when Daniel is just whipping the unconscious (laughs) monster over and over again. I don't get it either. By April 4th, 1944, production was underway. The film had a budget of $354,000 and a shooting schedule of 30 days. So they really gave them quite a bit to work with here. I think, what was it, the previous episode, The Mummy's Ghost, took 10 days or something like that? 10 days, yeah, yep. They get like a full shooting schedule here, which is good. Now, always trying to save money wherever possible, most of the film was shot on Universal's backlot with recycled sets from The Green Hell, Pittsburgh, Gung and Tower of London. However, some sequences were shot on location, including that gypsy camp sequence. Interesting how they don't still have like original sets or pieces of the last movie. You know, when they get to Frankenstein's castle, they try to recreate it as best as possible. Mm-hmm. But I was like, maybe we're going to see like the exact same set. Right. No, it's the Frankenstein castle. Every time it shows up, it's a completely different structure. So director Earl C. Kenton, whose name we've seen before with Ghost of Frankenstein, shot all of the Dracula scenes last. Oh. Uh, Actors John Carradine, Anne Gwynn, and Peter Coe had to arrive an hour early for makeup because of the extra time it took to get them to the forests near Malibu. By Monday, May 8th, production had wrapped. And the following August, Universal announced the film's title had changed from The Devil's Brood to House of Frankenstein ahead of its December premiere in New York City. Now, a note on the title change, which I thought was really interesting and I do agree with. Apparently, when Carl Lemley Jr. was head of the studio, he strongly discouraged title changes because he believed it would translate into a loss of publicity dollars. And I like totally get that. I, I, I That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, you got to have at least one of the monster names in the title. It's the marquee. It's like. So, really, I want to know why they didn't start with that kind of a title, why they didn't start with a Frankenstein centric title and then change it. Like, The Devil's Brood makes absolutely no sense. I imagine they chose that title before they really knew what the movie was and then it developed into a Frankenstein movie. You call it Frankenstein meets the Wolfman meets Dracula. Right. Right. Like, that's the working title. Yeah, even if you change it, you still have that name recognition. Audiences know what's coming and it builds that. That anticipation but to start with a title that has nothing to do with any of those characters and then change it at the last second to house of frankenstein i have to wonder if that had any impact whatsoever on the uh, the box office gross it's interesting because you think of now you hear like star wars was shot under blue harvest but that was never intended to be the title they just do that to shoot in secret and stuff but that wasn't the plan here either so it's just all types of sort of confusing on that front 
one of the major differences here is that these monster movies were becoming really passe. They're dying, so to speak. Yeah. You know, they're becoming less popular with audiences. And so I don't know that it, like a fake working title could have helped this at all. They really needed as much support as they could get with Star Wars. That was such a hot property that like you could call it anything and people were going to go see it. Yeah, they even end up putting actor names in front of the title when we get to the movie. Right. You know, so like it's more like they're selling Karloff and Cheney yep. than... So let's go through the cast real quick. We have Boris Karloff as Dr. Neiman, Lon Chaney Jr. as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman, John Carradine as Dracula. Now, this may be connected to that Chamber of Horrors project, but I read that Bela Lugosi was supposedly considered to play Dracula, but was forced to bow out due to other commitments. Between that and the story about Chamber of Horrors, I have to believe that Bela Lugosi got very close to being in this movie. Interesting. We got Irish-American J. Carol Nash as Daniel the Hunchback assistant. Nash was a prolific character actor and had a reputation for being extremely method with his roles. According to studio publicity, he had befriended a hunchbacked homeless man in a poor area of Los Angeles and worked with him to study his mannerisms for his role in House of Frankenstein. Huh. Apparently, his costume and makeup took five and a half hours to put on every day. So What? Really? I was surprised about that, too, because he doesn't have any elaborate makeup on his face. He has a beard, and then he has a clean-shaven face, and then the hunchback. I don't really know why it took five and a half hours, but that's word on the street. We got Anne Gwynn as Rita. Gwynn was an actress and model who appeared in many noir thrillers, musical comedies, and westerns. Today, she is considered to be one of the first scream queens because of her frequent appearances in Universal's horror films, including Black Friday with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, The Strange Case of Dr. Rx with Patrick Knowles and Lionel Atwill, and the Lon Chaney, Evelyn Anchors film, Weird Woman. Oh, wow. So she's in familiar company here in this movie. Yeah. And she's fantastic. Yeah. It's the first time we're seeing her, but Universal had all these other horror projects with a lot of the same actors. And so she's mm-hmm. definitely with familiar company. She was also a television pioneer appearing in TV's first filmed series, Public Prosecutor, which lasted from 1947 to 1948. And a fun fact that I found out about her, she's the grandmother of actor Chris Pine. Oh, wow. Look at that. Captain Kirk. Yeah. (laughs) One of them anyway. Wow. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a a wonderful presence in this movie. It just makes me wish she was in the entire movie. Yes. We'll get to it, but I feel like she did in this movie much better and faster than what we were sort of looking for in the Mummy movie with the female lead in that we actually get to see her as a normal person before she kind of gets seduced by the dark side if you will yes. you know like, yep. and she really portrays that very well very quickly yes yugoslavian actor peter ko as carl hussman house of frankenstein was almost at the beginning of his career he went on to appear in a number of war and action movies and spent a lot of time on various tv westerns but we will see him again in the mummy's curse Oh, okay. I look forward to that. You know, he had almost a Dwight Fry energy at some point because his character is another one of those dudes who's sort of so happy-go-lucky. And then by the end of his sequence has sort of like looked into the abyss, like sees the real horrors of the world and like has lost his sort of naivete mm-hmm. about everything. And you just feel so bad for that guy. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk about where he just like jumps on the horse. <laughs> we got Sig Ruman as the Burgermaster. One of them. <laughs> well, I didn't put both of them in the credits. This is the one that it's Carl's grandfather, the most important yes. burgermaster. Ruman was a German-American character actor known for playing pompous authority figures and villains, including Nazis. He appeared in over 120 films and TV shows over the course of his career, working with Ernst Lubitsch on 
Ninochka and To Be or Not To Be, as well as his protege Billy Wilder on Stalag 17. He was a popular foil for the Marx Brothers, appearing in A Night at the Opera, A Day at the Races, and A Night in Casablanca. Oh, wow. I've definitely seen this guy a lot then and just didn't know it because aside from all those Marx Brothers, uh, to be or not to be. And apparently uh, he's also in 123, Billy Wilder's 123, but it's just his voice. His face does not appear in the film. He's great in this too. You know, another one of those sort of upper crust, pompous yes. burgermeisters. <laughs> Maybe a little more at the end of his career than we're used to seeing or something. We got Lionel Atwill as Inspector Arntz. Oh, yeah. What was funny to me is that the poster doesn't even mention him, but George Zucco plays Professor Lampini. Yeah. Again, almost like a cameo. Such a great, colorful character that's on screen. I'm like, sweet, he's going to be in the whole movie. And then, nope. But then Lionel Atwell strolls into the film later, and it's like, nice. It's like almost not a Frankenstein movie without him at this point. Right. If he doesn't show up, it doesn't count. Elena Verdugo plays Ilanka. She's the gypsy woman who appears later on in the film. She was an American actress whose career spans six decades across a variety of films, television, and radio. Michael Mark as Frederick Strauss. He was born in what is now Belarus. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1910, and between 1928 and 1969, he appeared in over 120 films, including several Universal Monster films, many of them bit roles or uncredited roles, but he is most notable for his role as the man whose daughter was killed in the original Frankenstein. Look at that. Calling all the way back. All the way back, yep. To speak to your point earlier about how like the whole revenge subplot kind of gets forgotten about towards the end. Yeah. Michael Mark and then the next actor, Frank Riker, he plays Ullman. I forgot to include them in my notes here. And I thought, wait, hang on a second. Who are the two guys at the end? Who are those guys? And then I had to add them in sort of at the last minute. That's how much this movie sort of forgets about that whole plot. Yeah, it's pretty hysterical. I can't wait to just like talk about their one scene, <laughs> you know? The one guy gets kidnapped, and then you find out the other guy's already been kidnapped. It Frank Riker plays Ullman. He's come up before on the show. We've talked about him in the Mummy movies. He plays Professor Norman in The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Ghost. So that was cool. And then before we get to Glenn Strange, I wanted to mention William Edmonds, who plays Fejos. He's one of the gypsies in the camp scene. And the only reason I really wanted to mention him is because I like I was like, why do I know that guy? He looks so familiar. Well, I looked him up. He played Martini in It's a Wonderful Life. His career is, is crazy long. There's plenty of stuff in there, but I'm like, oh, it's Martini. So, okay, Glenn Strange plays the monster here. He was born in New Mexico and raised in West Texas. He was a fixture of Western media at the time, whether it was on the radio, in movies, and later on uh, in television, he played a lot of cowboys. His horror career began in 1942 when he appeared in the 1942 Poverty Row picture, The Mad Monster. But it wasn't until he was at Universal being made up for an action film that Jack Pierce realized that this six foot five inch tall, 220 pound actor with a unique face could make a perfect candidate to play the Frankenstein monster. Once cast, Boris Karloff himself personally coached Strange on how to play the monster. And Strange would go on to play the monster in two more films, House of Dracula, and then finally Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And as we discussed, his likeness far succeeds Karloff's in media, which I think is super cool, especially considering how famous Karloff is outside of Frankenstein. I feel like we can give this one to Glenn Strange. Yeah, well, I just love the idea that um, people sort of don't really see the difference on a certain level yeah. you know like that's just also cool to me that it's just like oh it's the character it's not like the actor behind the makeup look i would like everyone to get my picture right when i die but i understand that mistake you're not going to make that for every actor 
that's about it. That's all I got for the production notes. So let's dive right in here. Okay. We're, of course, still waiting for Universal's logo to change. (laughs) You are. I've given up hope. It's going to happen. With each movie, there's new hope. But it's going to happen, Mike. It's going to change. I know. The credits are pretty straightforward. Like, as you mentioned, I do think it's pretty cool that before you, the title, you know, the very first thing we see, Universal presents Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney's in like big, giant letters. Yeah. So they're really pushing these two guys right into the forefront here. Yeah, well, it's cool because like, even though Karloff isn't playing the monster, he's basically playing Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And everyone's, you know, down to see the Wolfman return. So it's great to know that Chaney's going to portray him. So very cool. Yep. So the movie opens with a thunderstorm, like as feels appropriate for a Frankenstein yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Dark and stormy night. We see Professor Lampini's Chamber of Horrors wagon train come through town. We don't really know what town it is, but he passes by a prison. And inside that prison is Dr. Neiman and his hunchbacked assistant, Daniel. Yeah. And even before we cut to the prison, we're given so much information right out of the gate. Like on the side of Lampini's wagon of horrors, it says the bones of Dracula, you know, and I'm just like, oh, okay. And then we cut away from that. There's like so much to catch up on, like right away. They're throwing so much at you. Yeah. I love that they do kind of hold on the side there because like we know Dracula is going to be in this movie. So like getting that little taste of it right at the in the opening shot is, is really neat. And so Dr. Neiman has been imprisoned. His cell is covered in chalk writing, uh, diagrams, notes. So cool. Just like a madman would, right? Like that's what it reminded me of. Yes. So <laughs> the guard calls him like a would-be Dr. Frankenstein. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm on board with this film no matter what. Like that's one of the funniest things on earth is calling the guy who played the monster Dr. Frankenstein. I was like... This is good. Yes. Like this is this is the kind of stuff I wasn't expecting, but am down for and feel like they're going to explore a little bit more of. I know that Karloff had kind of like quit being the monster at a certain point because he felt that he had taken the character as far as it could go. So I have to wonder how he felt about being in this movie, kind of extending the life of this character that he felt was dried up. Yeah, he gets to play from the other side, though. Now he gets to play the scientist instead of the creation. So so I thought that was really cool. And to answer your question, this was what I was alluding to earlier about nightmares. Is he's We find out he's in prison here. We see the diagram. He tried to put a human brain into a dog. Oh, yes. Just insanity. <laughs> yeah. He's in prison because he has been trying to recreate the work of Henry Frankenstein, right? But he doesn't have his yeah. notes. So he's only got like his own know-how. So his various experiments, including trying to put a human brain inside of a dog, have landed him in prison. He, I guess, was considered some sort of public nuisance in his hometown of Viseria. Well, it's like what they should have done to Frankenstein, but he was probably too rich to touch and like too well liked. This guy seems like a real jerk (laughs) and was probably like a menace, you know? Yes. So yeah, we establish that whole relationship, why he's in prison in the first place. And then wouldn't you know it, a bolt of lightning comes down from the sky and destroys the prison walls and allows for him to escape. Yes, this was cool. And the hunchback comes with him because he's like, oh, maybe you can fix me, yep, right? Yep. And, and Dr. Neiman's like, yeah, sure, I could do that. And like in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, cool. Like he's got himself like like a little guy who'll work for free for him. 
It, it just occurred to me that they weren't already partners before this. Like they, mm-hmm. they, they met in prison and he's like, yeah, sure. I, I could use the help and I can, I can fix you. So yeah, I'm just now considering the fact that they met in prison and now they formed this sort of alliance now that they've escaped. We never get to see how Fritz meets Henry Frankenstein, but like to see the origin of this partnership is pretty cool. Yeah, they're filling in some blanks. So they take off into the night. Professor Lampini's wagon has gotten stuck in the mud. And of course, these two men are uh, opportunists, if nothing else. And so they see this as an opportunity to get away safely. And they help Lampini get his wagon wheel unstuck. And then we're getting to meet Lampini, which I love George Zucco in this role. I wish he had hung out a little longer. So good. It almost reminds me of The Wizard of Oz to a degree. You know, like before we go to Oz and Dorothy runs into him on the side of the road and he's like a fortune teller and he's sort of just like a huckster, kind of like this, like on a different level, but they're both snowmen, you know, they're both like the colonel, what the colonel did to Elvis. I am the snowman, Elvis. I I will snow the rubes. In The Wizard of Oz, that fortune teller, that came to mind immediately. And these movies weren't released all that far apart. So I wonder if there was some some kind of inspiration. Probably not. But like with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we can look back and that image immediately comes to mind. And so Neiman kind of feels out Lampini here a bit after he gets the elevator pitch on the attraction of Dracula's skeleton. Yeah, right. That was so funny. Lampini starts to think, okay, well, I wonder if this guy could take me all the way back to Viseria. And... When that doesn't work out, he decides he's going to just kill Lampini and uh, take over the whole attraction. Yeah, Lampini knows of this guy. He's like, 15 years ago, there was like some mad scientist uh, in Viserio. I don't go back there. But like they tell him a story. He's like, oh, so you've been held by bandits for ransom in the mountains for all this time. And that's their cover story. <laughs> and he totally buys it. It didn't really have to be a good story to begin with because they end up killing him anyway. True, true. And, and I love how Karloff is framed like in front of the rainy window with the drapes behind like there's just something so hypnotizing karloff is just from the get-go is just mesmerizing in this movie if you ask me like i am i am just hanging on every move it's interesting to see having seen him play the frankenstein monster where he really couldn't speak much if at all to now see him as the karloff that we know as this like super eloquent like he's capable of playing nefarious he's got this gravitas to him and we get to see that on full display in this sequence and we'll see it more throughout the movie but like yeah it's like finally the shackles have come off and karloff can go like full maniac Yeah, yeah. A a term came to mind. I'm not sure if it's appropriate because it might have a different meaning. But like, he is so smooth that I was like, he is a smooth criminal. Like, he is just so snaky and calm and collective and cunning. And it's written sort of like all over his face. I I mean, he's very much a guy who has spent a lot of time in prison and has learned patience. Yeah, he's got his plan and he's just got to execute it. Yeah. I love that whole sequence. And then, of course, he kills Lampini. They kill the driver. And then with new identities, they assume those identities. They have a shave. They look totally different. Karloff looks great with the mustache and the hat. Totally. Daniel gets like uh, one of those monkey organ grinder jackets. He looks like one of the Wicked Witches, like flying monkeys a little bit. Yeah, there you go again with another Wizard of Oz reference. Yeah, and we learn that he's got a little kill bill list where he's like we got to get strauss Ullman, and hussman those are the guys that are responsible for putting me away yes the first stop on that revenge tour is regalberg which lampini explicitly said i'm not going to regalberg 
that was sort of the moment Neiman decided, okay, we got to take matters into our own hands here. We'll find out in kind of a funny moment that Lampini was run out of Regalton three years ago. So maybe that's why he didn't want to return. Yep, that's exactly right. So we cut to a scene in Regalberg. It's the inspector played by uh, Lionel Atwill and then our burgomaster who is the number one on this kill list. They're playing chess and we meet Carl and we meet Rita. We find out that they have plans to go to the carnival and they want to go check out the spook show. And we learn that Rita is engaged or just married Carl. And we have no idea what happened to Mr. and Mrs. Hussman. Like they will not be mentioned the entire movie. It is just Carl as he is raised by his grandfather, which I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, it just makes me think like if this sequence was an entire movie, there's a lot more to explore here. Yeah, you know? for sure. <laughs> If I had to surmise, I I think that they had cast these two young romantic leads. And then when they cast the Burgomaster, they cast somebody that they liked, I guess, maybe based on his performance. And they're like, he's way too old to be dad. So let's make him Mm. grandfather. And then we'll just never address the parents. You know, like that has to be it. They happen to like rope the inspector and the burgomaster into like joining them for the evening and so then we get to see neiman as lampini doing full sideshow barker yeah this is a really fun sequence and like this is where i just like to start mentioning some of the camera work like yeah. we're gonna get we're gonna get a lot of oneers in this movie and they're all like we just had one with that whole like introduction i feel like that whole scene was like one or two shots mm-hmm. and the camera just sort of traveling around the living room and it was just so well orchestrated that like usually those scenes to me are kind of flat but like this one I was like why is there like an energy to this and I was like oh like the camera's moving a lot and the acting's terrific and like they're just getting right to the point with everything and then when we show up at this carnival sideshow thing we see like it's awesome like it is not second rate to anything we've seen before you know like it reminds me of like the elaborate gypsy camps and previous films or or like festivals in the streets and stuff we get that giant ape makes me think of maybe like a king kong reference or something since you mentioned cinematography i feel like we should mention this was shot by george robinson we've talked about him on the show before he shot the mummy's tomb but most importantly he shot dracula's daughter which i believe we spent a great deal of time talking about the camera work and that so yeah he's not new to the universal monsters we've actually really uh, sung his praises quite a few times son of dracula he shot as well frankenstein meets the wolfman yeah, Son of Dracula, for what it is, like had some really cool shots in it. Absolutely. Right. I think with those films, we, we have at some point gone out of our way to say, okay, but the camera work is really good. And, and it's no different here. I think this movie, the, the cinematography here is one of the strengths for sure. The whole thing of this scene is that after Karloff gives like his big speech about the bones of Dracula and like if I remove the stake and all that, Burgermeister Hussman is like, oh, Peshaw, like whatever. Like, I don't believe, like I'm a non-believer. But like everyone else is it's like, ah, Dracula's real. Like, <laughs> I love that. And later we're sort of going to get the same thing with the Wolfman. Like, I love that idea that maybe the, the law enforcement's in denial or something, but the residents have no doubt. We're a long way from Transylvania, so I could see people still being kind of dubious about Dracula. But you're right. There's no question in anybody's mind when they get to like the gypsy camp. Werewolves exist, people. And certainly in the town of Frankenstein and in the town of Viseria, they've had plenty of horrors to talk about for years. I feel like in this dynamic, Dracula is the only one where I can sort of buy people not really believing that he exists. Especially since Son of Dracula was set in the United States, right? Like Europe hasn't been ravaged by vampire action as much as everybody else. 
It's just almost like the whole sort of turnaround. It's come from the original Burgermeister being so suspicious of Dr. Frankenstein that he's up to no good and making a monster to now the Burgermeister being like, I don't believe it in, in monsters. <laughs> it's funny how, how far we, I almost wonder if that was done like as an intentional joke, the idea of like the man in charge is the only one who doesn't believe what's going on. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, would be his job to ensure town safety. I would hope that he would take these matters seriously. It's a far cry from the guy who stepped in in the mummy movie at the end last time and was like, what do we got here? A mummy? All right, cool. That's true. Yeah. That guy was like totally like mummy. All right. Here's what we do. Start digging a ditch. So at the end of this scene, Karloff has that sort of heated back and forth with the Burgermaster. Well, that's when he's like, I think I knew you. Don't I yes. know you? And, and that's where he's like, I'm Lampini. And that's he's like, I ran you out of town. He's like, no, no, no. That was my brother. I'm, I'm his brother. <laughs> but he doesn't totally buy that, though. And so Neiman has to tell him, like, well, maybe it'll come to you one day. And then as they all leave in a sort of out of frustration, he pulls the stake out of the chest of Dracula's skeleton. And in like a really cool transition, we see Dracula rematerialize. We see like his blood vessels and then his muscle tissue. And then finally we see John Carradine gasping for air. Apparently that was his idea. Like as soon as he materializes, he wanted to like have that sort of gasp as though life was returning to his body. That was a great touch. I, I love that. I'll get to that in a second. But like, I love the way it's played where Karloff just sort of like absentmindedly removes the stake from the skeleton just to use as like a bludgeon. He's like, I'm going to kill the Burgermaster with it. And he just sort of like takes it without even thinking. And then whether or not he believed it was actually Dracula's bones is another thing. But like, you know, I just love how he's just like, I'll take this and use this. And then it dawns on him that like, uh uh-oh, Dracula rematerialized. That was a nice touch. And then they have like this little standoff. Dracula is like trying to hypnotize him, but he's got the stake to his heart. So they have to make a deal. Okay, maybe this is new or something that I've never seen before, but like, is that why he can resist this sort of vampire hypnosis? Is because he has a stake in his hand, like ready to kill Dracula? Because I've never, I've never seen that ever anywhere else. I was thinking that maybe Dracula is still too weak to hypnotize someone entirely and that Karloff kind of shook it off, you know, because he realized he was in like a better position. He had the high ground mm-hmm. <laughs> over him, but it isn't clear. It isn't exactly clear because then Karloff's like, here's the deal. Like, I'll protect your coffin, make sure it's got your dirt in it. You go and like do what I say. And Dracula like agrees to that. Like he's such a pushover. Yeah. Like, Okay, so my problems with this version of Dracula have nothing to do with John Carradine. It's just that he gives in way too quickly, and then he's eliminated far too quickly. This is not Bela Lugosi's Dracula. This isn't even Lon Chaney Jr.'s Dracula. This is like Dracula light. Yeah, he calls himself by a different name. I'm starting to wonder if that's who this really is. Because, yeah, as soon as Dracula comes back to life, like, he is biting Dr. Professor Neiman, he is gonna like attack and then Neiman becomes his Renfield, his little puppet, you know and then that's the power dynamic for the rest of the movie. Instead they're gonna sort of ditch him. It's so weird. I think about Lugosi's Dracula, if he were put in this situation, like he might have agreed just to get out of the coffin and kind of get into a safe position, but then yeah, he would have absolutely turned on Neiman he would have not honored their agreement, he would have probably killed him and then and gone on to wreak havoc across Europe again. So I don't understand Dracula's subservient kind of behavior here, but this is the Dracula we've got. So... <laughs> 
I'll take what I could get. You know, each variant offers something unique, right? Like, there's room for everything. So I'm curious while watching this to see where they're going to take this version of Dracula. So we cut back to our group from before. We've got Rita and Carl and uh, the Burgermaster. And they're headed home from the events when they are greeted by this carriage. Inside the carriage is Dracula. And he offers to give them a ride. They originally planned to go to like a tavern, right? For some wine, just to like hang out. Pretty much. He invites him to come with him. He's, a, I guess he's going to book a room at the inn. This shot is gorgeous. Walking home at night in the, in the fog with the canopy of trees and stuff. Like I was getting chills from this shot and Rita is scared out of her mind. And I buy it. Oh, yeah. And he introduces himself as Baron Latos. After inviting them back to, I guess, his inn or wherever he's staying for some wine, the Burgomaster kind of insists that they go back to his place to enjoy some of his wine. It's like this competition of politeness a little bit. Almost. And it's almost like, yeah, I'm the Burgomaster. Like, this is my town. Like, you're new here. Yo, let me be hospitable, I felt. I'll show you a good time. And so now Dracula has been invited inside to his home. Yes, that's so clever. I mean, I don't think that rule has been explicitly stated up to this point. Yeah, I'm not sure. Van Helsing may have said something in the very first movie. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure. Kind of curious now because I've never actually looked into it, but I suspect now that rule of having a vampire having to be invited in could be based on this idea that historically Dracula visits other people makes social visits and um, never actually brings people over to his place. Mm, and, and so yeah. like it's sort of this unspoken thing that we never actually see but has been retconned since where okay well it's because he had to get permission to come in we just never saw it i don't know i'd be curious to know where that originated or where it was first introduced yeah i'm not sure how much we've talked about it but i'll just state here i love that rule about vampire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just because they on one level feel so overpowered yep. that that is a nice kind of buffer if you will, where it's like they they have no power over you unless you grant it to them. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like the devil too. There's similarities to like to Satan or the devil. You know, you have to invite the devil into your life. But anyway, now we've got Rita and Dracula together alone. I think Carl has gone to get some wine and the Burgermaster has passed out, I think from drinking too much. And so now it's just Dracula and Rita and he starts like putting the whammy on her. He gives her this ring on his finger that she's sort of transfixed on. And it's this really cool effect where he puts it on her finger. It's too big, but then it sort of magically comes down to her size. Yeah. He starts making some kind of like love toast. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, Carradine is smooth, man. I loved all the ring talk about how she's like, I see a strange world in there. And he's like, I'll be back for you. Like, this is sort of his homing device, I guess. His tracker. It's like, you wear the ring now? Or or is it like high school? Like, <laughs> Or it's like, it's like a way that he can sort of put his claim on her. From this point on, he can sort of communicate with her telepathically. She starts to see these visions. They're practically married, you know, like he put a ring on. Yeah, that's basically true. With that accomplished, Dracula sees himself out. And then uh, the Burgomaster starts looking into this Lampini that he met, the brother of the Lampini he used to know. And then he eventually figures out that it's Dr. Neiman. But before he can do anything about it, Dracula comes through the door, transforms into a vampire bat for some reason. That's a carryover from Son of Dracula, where he turns into a bat 
to drain the victims instead of doing it in like human form. It's not like we haven't seen it before. I just don't get it. I feel like he could save himself the trouble of transforming. But here he goes. He has this like shadow transformation, which is pretty cool. He drains the Burgomaster of his blood and then calls Rita from outside. He rematerializes outside in the second ever transformation that we see like from bat to man remember with the first time we saw that was son of dracula and then now we see it here which i think it looks about the same if not better effects wise yeah they stick with the animation once he turns into a bat as opposed to you know cutting to a puppet or something other than that so i really liked how when he became the bat and attacked the burgermeister it was all done in silhouette yep that was very effective we're gonna get a lot of silhouette kills we'll get another struggle later i wonder if that's a ratings thing but that's an instance where art and ideas triumphed because like they found a cooler way to portray uh, someone getting killed in one of these movies like, right it is a little silly though because he transforms to go in and then he comes out and he transforms back so it's almost just like nowadays like watching transform where it's just like spectacle, right? Like Dracula is just here for special effects. And and that's okay for for what it's worth because, yeah, I'm, I'm with the spirit of the movie. I like what they're doing with it. Yeah. He does also get my favorite sequence in the whole movie, which is coming up. But yeah, I, I do enjoy that if they were going to put him in the movie, he was an excuse to to have some special effects thrown in. So so now Rita is in her like trance and she's speaking nonsense about like having visions from this like other world. Carl is beside himself. He has no idea what's going on. He sees the ring on her finger, has the crest of Dracula on it. As that is happening, as Rita is sort of under that spell, Carl calls the inspector, inspector aren'ts to tell him that his grandfather has been murdered he's got two bites on the side of his neck and that like something's up with rita and before the inspector can get there rita is sort of in a sort of hypnotic trance lured outside into dracula's carriage where he spirits her away and basically just gets the fuck out of town There's so much cool stuff in all of that. Like, I love when we cut to Rita and Carl in the bedroom. I think it's my favorite shot of the movie where she's looking out the window. And again, it's another gorgeous silhouette. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she's sort of, like you say, like reciting that nonsense about the ring and another world and a beautiful night and all that. Just so good to look at. And yeah, it's nice to see sort of both of these characters start changing, right? Mm-hmm. And like dramatically and like becoming different characters, like right before our eyes in this scene. And I love how. I wasn't really on board with Carl. I was like, this guy's kind of a doofus. But now I was like watching him have a breakdown because of Dracula's influence on her and everything. It's very interesting and how he springs into action and it's becoming the hero. He is the hero we've needed for a few movies now, we're going to find out. And so nice. Like, you know, it has to play out, right? Like a certain way. Like she has to be called to Dracula and they have to go after her and everything. But it's very well staged the way he is like seeing it out of the balcony window. All the framing is really well done. So like even though we're on very familiar ground, like we've been here several times before, they're doing a very good job of presenting it in a very nice way. You know, it doesn't feel repetitive. Like like these people haven't gone through this before. So it feels like a new experience through their eyes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that if it were shot a little more flatly, like the way some of the, the previous films we've talked about have been shot, like some of them just straight up look uninspired. Like they just put the camera in the room just so they could shoot it. And then 
didn't really give a shit what it looked like. This is not that. You're right. I think that if, if it looked like that, I, I would care much less. I probably wouldn't like this movie as much as I do. But because it does look really good, I am able to forgive the repetitive nature of the story and just enjoy the visual on top of enjoying just seeing all these actors that I love. So yeah, I, I think this, this proves right here, if your movie looks like shit, it's going to be shit. I agree with you on Carl as well. I kind of found him to be kind of a drip until this moment. Now he's he's become kind of like an action hero. You know, he's a take charge kind of guy here. He runs after the carriage and the carriage like just kind of takes off and he runs into Inspector Arns and his men, explains the situation, hops on a horse himself, and then like a bunch of them just take off after that carriage. Now, this is probably my favorite sequence in the whole movie. I think that just as an action set piece, this looks so harrowing to shoot. It looks like there was a lot of legitimate stunt work happening here. And I just love all of this action. I couldn't believe that we were going to get like a horse and buggy chase, like a high speed, fast and furious style, you know, shot in the 40s takes place like somewhere in the hills of Europe. And they're on horses and they're chasing Dracula and they're like drifting through the river. Yeah, this was great. I had so much fun with this chase sequence. Yeah. So to flesh out the narrative elements of this scene, Neiman and Daniel see the inspectors coming by horseback. They assume they've been figured out and that they're coming for them. And so they get onto their like wagon train and just immediately start booking. And then they realize that they're chasing Dracula. And so Neiman makes the decision to basically cut Dracula loose. Like he has served his purpose. He has killed the Burgomaster that imprisoned Neiman. And so Daniel has this incredible scene where he's like climbing over the different carriages and like he hops over one to the other and then pushes Dracula's coffin out of the final carriage and now dracula has to like kind of make a decision his coffin has been abandoned in the middle of nothing and the horses come unhooked from his carriage which goes careening into like a ditch and that stunt by itself i think that is maybe the most impressive stunt i've seen i doubt that that's john carradine but the carriage is like coming at the camera dracula jumps off the carriage just crashes right into the camera it looks like the most perilous thing we've seen to date or one of the most perilous sequences it's just it's so kinetic yeah my head was spinning i couldn't believe the amount of action going on and all this and like you said like how it progresses the story like yes. it's not just here to be fun plot is happening and stuff oh, yeah. where do i go back first of all like when daniel is jumping from roof to roof and swinging back like i know like that's not all real or anything but it plays so well like it looks so cool there are very few rear projection shots in that sequence yeah there are like that first jump was for sure for real i just couldn't believe what i was seeing i was like they're gonna just cut dracula loose like that they're gonna throw his coffin at, like he is dead yep I, I honestly couldn't believe what the movie was going to do to me. And I kind of loved it. At the time, they probably weren't feeling this. But me watching this now, I was like, kind of like the balls on these guys to just kind of like treat Dracula like Janet Lee and Psycho almost, where it's like, we're going to kill off one of our main characters, if not like the guy you might have been here to see. It was wild. And then when he jumps off of the careening carriage going into the ditch, I was like, 
there's a woman in that carriage, like story wise. I'm like, there's someone in that carriage. I'm like, Rita's in the carriage. <laughs> like I was getting so into it, Dan. It was so much fun. And she comes out of it like unscathed, miraculously. Thankfully. As the inspector and his men and Carl arrive on the scene, Dracula is frantically trying to get back inside his coffin before the sun comes up, but he's unable to do so. And they watch him sort of dissolve into a skeleton, much like we saw Lon Chaney do in Son of Dracula. So with Dracula... Once again, dead thanks to sunlight, Carl and Rita are reunited and both are no worse for the wear. It seems. No, yeah, they're better off. I mean, the ring falls off her finger. Yep. They've bonded stronger from this incident. You know, if they want, they could now they could parade around the bones of Dracula again. They don't need to like worry about him coming back to life. You know, it's not like he died with the stake this time. I'm surprised bones are left. You know, I just assumed pile of dust but then you're like you put it in a jar and you're like hey it's the dust of dracula and you put that on display so i don't remember how they explain dracula being alive again in house of dracula so i'm excited to get to that but i mean dracula has been staked he's been exposed to sunlight and he keeps coming back maybe if we assume that this was the original dracula or supposed to be the original dracula who was staked by van helsing then okay it's probably that because lon cheney as the son of dracula he's exposed to the sun and it dissolves you know so maybe it's not him it's the original but anyway, with Dracula now out of the picture, Neiman and Daniel make their way to the village of Frankenstein. Can't believe they still haven't changed the name of that town. Guys like these would never find it, you know? Yeah, this has been at least 15 years, probably more. I mean, it's been 15 years since the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman were swept away in the, the water from the dam that destroyed Frankenstein's castle. So they show up in Frankenstein. There's a camp of like gypsies. This is where we get that uh, gypsy dance sequence, which if this is what made it through the censorship board, I have to wonder what got cut out because this does seem like a pretty lengthy gypsy dance scene. Yeah, and I was thinking like this is a lot of time we're spending here in an otherwise very fast-paced movie it's like almost grinds to a halt because of the length of this dance like nothing against it on its own or anything it's just like wow i felt like we were running and now we're, we're starting to sort of jog here for a minute well we gotta we gotta cool down after that harrowing carriage race yeah i understand and we also have to fall in love dan we gotta get hit with cupid's arrow that's right. So Daniel catches a glimpse of Ilanka doing her gypsy dance, falls in love with her immediately, and their ill-fated romance begins. Yeah, and then the cops tell Fejos and the gypsies that they got to get out of town, right? Because like they don't have a permit. They're getting kicked out of town because like they say someone's been robbing them. Yeah. And that's when Karloff shows up and can't get a permit, can't even stay the night, just keep on moving sir but he needs an excuse to stay in town because this is where he hopes to find the journals of henry frankenstein so that he can continue his work so he has to stay but local law enforcement refuses to grant him a permit to stay and basically tells him the same as the gypsies you got to get the hell out of here i love what the burgermeister says though because it's like what you said earlier he's like we won't have any of this monster shit anymore <laughs> This is Frankenstein town. Like, we've been through it all. He's like, you see that castle? You see that dam? Like, there's a dead wolf man up there. Yeah. Nothing with, like, 
any kind of macabre, like keep on trucking, sir. Like that's why we don't want you here. Speaking of the castle, I love the matte painting they've superimposed in this shot. It looks really good. I mean, it looks different from the castle and the dam from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but like not so different as to be unrecognizable. I really, I really like the way that they've worked that matte painting in there. Yeah, there's something like that tricks your eye, or at least mine. It, it almost felt like it was in motion, like you could feel like debris falling off of that dam right. still. I love matte paintings. Yes, always. As the gypsies are packing up and preparing to leave town, Fejos shakes down Ilanka for the money she earned from her dance. Basically threatens to thrash her within an inch of her life if she doesn't give him the money. And that's when um, he begins to whip her. And uh, I think Daniel heads into action, right, to, to defend her honor. This was uh, what I was mentioned a little earlier about some clever staging. When Fejos knocks Alanka to the ground with the whip and starts whipping her, you get like an extra stand in front of her, mm-hmm. right? Like a little crowd kind of gathers. So like we don't really see her getting whipped, but it's, you know, heavily implied. You know, I, I was like, wow, that's that's a smart way to kind of keep that in, but get around the censors. Yes, Definitely gets the point across by cheating it a little bit that way. But with Daniel now in love with her and with Neiman having to like make moves really quickly, Daniel convinces him to let Neiman bring her along. He kind of does it just to shut him up too. <laughs> All right. If it'll, if it'll keep you quiet, just bring her along. I don't care. And so we get this really sweet scene. I actually really like this performance from both actors here. So we have Daniel who is like bringing Alonka some tea or coffee, kind of making sure she's okay. He uh, makes her laugh. And then she asks him to like come up into the carriage so she can get a better look. And that's when she sees, she realizes for the first time that he has this hunchback. And for whatever reason, she sees that and sort of recoils in disgust but at the same time was just like oh look you're a really nice guy and i'm gonna be your friend yeah i almost saw it as at first she was surprised and she was like oh and then after like a minute she's like well that doesn't matter that's almost how i took it It was like you know i'm more into his brain than his body or whatever it is you know she yes recoils at first but then sort of comes around very quickly and is like i do like you yeah we can talk and we can get to know each other her feelings for him could be genuine you know wanting to actually be his friend but like she can't take back that initial reaction you know the damage has been done to his ego yeah but he'll keep at it god bless him yeah. While it's nighttime, Dr. Neiman and Daniel uh, sneak into the ruins of the Frankenstein castle and the whole former laboratory is like this ice cave now. So awesome. Well, first they're sort of like knocking about like upstairs with the ruined lab area and... Daniel falls through the floor and they find that ice cave, which is almost like, I was like, oh, it's almost like purgatory or something. Because we know that there's some bodies down here who are sort of like in stasis waiting to come back alive. My first thought when I saw it was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Superman's Fortress of Solitude. (laughs) I also thought of Logan's Run. I don't know. Have you seen that movie at one point? Okay, minor spoilers for the movie Logan's Run. When they're escaping, they come across like a robot and he's freezing people. Anyway. I haven't seen Logan's Run, but I have to. So yeah, this is where they discover the frozen Wolfman and the frozen Frankenstein monster. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't entirely understand why it's like an icy cave. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why it's that cold down there, but like not that cold up 
on surface level. Okay. I don't really understand the purpose of it being like a freezing cold icy tomb. I hear you. I think the concept is that the water rushed in and sort of flooded everything and then over time i guess uh, especially during winter it froze over and maybe it's just it was unexposed to the outside and like sealed off to a degree mm-hmm. where it was uh, able to stay preserved on some level or it just looks really awesome i mean it does look cool and that's just as good a reason as any as far as i'm concerned but i did question it i'm like why is it gotta be icy i don't get it i was like oh it's because uh we're gonna find some monsters in carbonite down here We've seen monsters sort of preserved in hot sulfur. Frankenstein monster was preserved that way. So, I mean, I guess it could have gone that way, but... Yeah, and they found him in ice at one point, too, so... In the previous one, yeah, in Frankenstein yeah, the Wolfman. Yeah. They find the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster and thaw them out. Wolfman is first to come free, and as soon as he is fully thawed, he changes back into Larry Talbot, and... Now, Larry's going to Larry. And boy, does he Larry. He's like, (laughs) why did you free me? And it's been like so many years. And he's like, I just want to die. He agrees to help Dr. Neiman locate Frankenstein's notes in the hopes that he can find a way to end his life for good. You know, like that's kind of his thing now. He just, he wants to die and stay dead. And anybody who can help him achieve that goal, he's there to help him. And didn't they reference, they referenced the doctor from the last movie he's like that guy didn't help me and he said he would and it's like no one could lift my curse and then neiman is just stacking the deck you know he's like i can help you i'm gonna help my hunchback friend get a new body i'll help you sure but all along he's got like his own plan that we'll find out about but it's cool how he's sort of like collecting bodies to switcheroo later like he's just gonna play like the brain game with everybody yes and i can't wait to talk about that because i did like i said i made a diagram to keep everything straight it's like that futurama episode where they all switch brains and they made some kind of like theorem or formula based on that show so now with this sort of like uneasy alliance larry helps them find frankenstein's notes which is strange to me because in frankenstein meets the wolfman they find that journal and in this movie they have to sort of like rediscover it like it's been rehidden yeah dan it's the quantum journal we've had so many problems like didn't the wolfman versus frankenstein end with the journal like in the water so uh, or maybe that was one idea is that it got washed away or something but yeah I don't think we ever really see what happens to it but i would have assumed okay. that if it was not damaged in the flood that it would have been like laying around with the laboratory equipment this thing is like the necronomicon like you cannot <laughs> get rid of it it will go to where it is called it will find you so they have to like rediscover it they, pro- they pull open some rocks find it hidden in a wall and now with frankenstein's notes they are now making their way to Viseria, and the monster is safe in i think the rear carriage and larry now is put in charge of, of driving them to Viseria. yeah that's so funny too and and when asked why he can't drive daniel is told because larry is bothersome and i didn't like want to listen to his shit all day he's just gonna be whining about dying he can drive now with Larry driving them to Viseria, he has this really fun moment with Ilanka. Ilanka, assuming that it's Daniel driving the carriage, hops up front with him, meets Larry, and despite Larry's completely dour attitude about everything, falls madly in love with him. Mm-hmm. But Dan, that is why. 
because <laughs> she wants to fix this guy or make him uh-huh. happy. Like only she can make this guy happy. Like look at him. He is tormented. Tall, dark, handsome, super emo. Like one of the first emo boys. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the first in when we did our Wolfman episode, I called him the ultimate sad boy. Yeah, there you go. And it's the return of the love triangle. I much rather prefer it when it's like between like two monsters and a woman as opposed to <laughs> like a human, a monster and a woman. But yeah, there's no way it'll work out well for anybody. Exactly. Like this whole situation's doomed. Now the next day when they eventually get to Viseria, they're like camped out, kind of doing stuff around their camp. Larry's kind of getting washed up, having a conversation with Ilanka. She's pulling the whole like, oh, why don't you try smiling, Larry? Meanwhile, Daniel's like watching it from afar, like his jealousy is starting to build, right? But Larry does humor her and she's pressing for him to like open up and and he kind of um, just keeps giving her excuses and excuses and brushes her off. Eventually they do make it to Dr. Neiman's laboratory. I love that sign that says entrance to these grounds forbidden Gustav Neiman. So we get his first name, Dr. Gustav Neiman. It is the lab that they caught him doing stuff in like all those years ago though. correct like, it, it, yeah he mentions how like oh all of my equipment still works like that's fortuitous like you know is a minor fixer up yeah i'm almost positive that this is the same laboratory from ghost of frankenstein where cedric hardwick was like the other son of frankenstein Yeah, yeah. And the actual ghost of Frankenstein showed up. So he has sort of claimed this as his own lab, but it's been 15 years since he was last in it. So he's got to assess any damage. He determines that uh, the equipment still works, still functions, and they're going to get started cleaning the lab and getting their experimentations underway as soon as possible. There's a couple of nice little things here. Like when Alanka sees the monster for the first time, like under the sheet, Uh uh, she runs to Larry. Right. And Daniel's like, I don't <laughs> and then when they cut back to like after the cleaning the lab montage and making things sure everything works, they're all in those cool lab coats. Yes. That's really cool looking. Yeah. Like now it looks like a Frankenstein movie. The lab coats and all the machinery, the things that go bing. Now we're starting to feel at home. Yeah. And he starts powering everything up. And I see all of like the Tesla coils and all of like the electricity things and everything starts like whirling and fizzing and catching on fire. The thing explodes in fire and he's like, yeah, <laughs> he's like that's supposed to happen. <laughs> Unfortunately for Larry, time is of the essence, right? Things are just not moving as quickly for him as he would like. And he tells Dr. Neiman that tonight there's going to be a full moon. We we have to do this now. And uh, and Neiman just keeps preaching patience, patience. Well, as he's going to find out, there is no time. That moon is going to rise. Larry is going to transform into a wolfman and somebody's going to die. Yeah. And this is where I started thinking to myself, like Neiman has his own ideas, like his own plans, like his own agenda. Like Larry factors into it, but he's not first, you know, like Larry's like me first, me first. And he's in the middle of powering up the monster, you know, and the monster's like twitching and stuff. And Larry's like, there's going to be a full moon. And, and the doc's like, I haven't yet learned how to combine the techniques. I'm like, you're starting to sound like Palpatine, you know, like, <laughs> if we can work together, we could figure out the secret. And this guy's just like, now, now, now. Even Daniel's like, hey, you said you were going to fix me. Right. 
there's a line. <laughs> and and like Neiman's like, no, we don't have time for that now. We have to go find our old friends, Ullman and Strauss. Oh, and yeah. Now we got to go find Ullman and Strauss, you know? It's becoming abundantly clear that Neiman is a man who makes a lot of promises, but just never follows through with them. And, and I love how Daniel's like, I want Larry's body. And it's like, you don't get to just like, this isn't how it works. Like, we were going to find you a new thing or build you one. But like, you don't like, I, he's got other plans for Larry's body. Like, we'll come to find out. Yes. Yeah, no, he can't have Larry's body. Um, it's not going to happen. So, okay, so now we come back to the revenge plot. Yeah, right? <laughs> there are two men, Ullman and Strauss. So the burgomaster, Hussman, who died earlier in the film or was killed, he was responsible, like he was the arresting officer who basically was responsible for putting Neiman in prison. And now Ullman and Strauss are the two like witnesses who testified against him in court. And one of them was his former assistant, he says, right? right? Was it Strauss, maybe? I can't remember which one, but that was like, whoa, even your boy turned against you, right. you know? Who would not report on a, a man who was trying to put a human brain in a dog body? It's so weird how much we've seen the dogs come into play in the last couple of movies, and immediately in this, when they told me, like, he experimented on a dog, I was like, he's evil. It's, it's one of those, like, really easy screenwriting tricks to, like, establish a villain. Like, do something bad to an animal. And vice versa. We've talked about this when we were, like, in film classes and stuff. There's that save the cat kind of moment. Like, you want to establish somebody as a hero, have them save an animal. And, like, right there, like, in two seconds, the audience knows what this person is. And so, yeah, yeah, we got a, a villain who's experimenting on dogs. Instant bad guy. Dude, I love the way that he kidnaps this one dude on the street. He just approaches Strauss at night and he's like, it's me. It's Hesman. You remember putting me away all those years ago? He's like, why don't you come along with me? And he's like, never. <laughs> he runs down an alley where Daniel's waiting for him. And, and, you know, they do like, it's like the oldest trick in the book, but it's like, he didn't need these monsters like, he didn't necessarily need Dracula to do his bidding. He doesn't need the Wolfman or Frankenstein to do his bidding. Right. He will do his own bidding, which I felt was, like, very cool and very cold-blooded. Right, right. We go back to the carriage. Strauss is now tied up. This guy, Ullman, also has been tied up. We skip completely over capturing him. Strauss, like I said, both of these guys testified in court. Strauss specifically testified that he saw Neiman steal a body from a grave. So we don't really get the specifics of Ullman's testimony, but we do find out that he has like 15,000 marks Neiman can have if he just lets him go. And Neiman's just like, oh, like a thousand for each year I was imprisoned. Like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, that was the weaseliest move. You have no idea what this guy's just been through to get you. Your brain's going in a jar, pal. So this is where he sort of lays out the plan. Neiman lays out what he's going to do with Strauss, Ullman. And as far as I've got it figured out, Strauss's brain is going to go into the Frankenstein monster body. And then uh, Larry Talbot's Wolfman brain is going to go into Ullman's body. Is that right? Or is it the other way around? Is Ullman's brain going to go into the Wolfman body? I think it's more hopscotchy than that. So Ullman's brain goes into the monster. Strauss's brain goes into the Wolfman. Larry's brain, no, the monster's brain goes into Larry. No. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. I, got, I got the characters mixed up. Okay, so Ullman's brain is going to go into the skull of the Frankenstein monster. Strauss is going to get the brain of the Wolfman so that he will spend the rest of his life in untold agony. No, wait, he gets the Wolfman's body. 
No, he gets the Wolfman's brain because he he wants to save Larry Talbot's body for the Frankenstein monster's brain. That means, I don't know. Continue. <laughs> it's so confusing. Because like, if you put Strauss's brain into the Wolfman, he becomes the Wolfman. But if you put the Wolfman's brain into Strauss, he's still... How is that different? I think the thinking is that the Wolfman affliction is is mental. So Larry's screwed no matter what. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense in terms of like Larry getting what he wants. Because like the way these brain transplants seem to work, the brain stays whoever that person is, right? So when, when Igor's brain was transplanted into the Frankenstein monster's body, the Frankenstein monster kind of became Igor, spoke in his voice. So if you follow that line of thinking, taking Larry Talbot's wolfman brain and putting it into Strauss's body, then that should, in theory, turn Larry Talbot into Strauss. But... Are we going to have an extra brain or an extra body? I think we're getting rid of Strauss's brain entirely. Yeah, we have to get rid of one. Yes. Strauss's brain has no future that we hear. I feel like Daniel's the one who's going to get screwed out of all this. Well, yeah, he doesn't have a body to inhabit. So give him Ullman's body, right? Or that's what the monsters get. No, the monster's getting Strauss's. I don't care. I love how confusing this is. It is amazing. It is so great because it just goes to show like they didn't really care or, you know, bother to think it all through because that's not where this movie's going anyway. Like it's right. it's going to end. It has a completely different objective and way it wants to go and get to its ending. Like it has nothing to do with this story. Well, I kind of wish that that's how it did end where like, I mean, you could still have the characters who die can die, but it would be great if they, if he like left behind these abominations that were now alive and like maybe they spend the rest of their days in a, in an asylum somewhere or in a prison or whatever but like if he had finished the work and then died i think that would have made for a much more fun ending but he never gets there and like this whole subplot as we've said multiple times just doesn't go anywhere right halfway through the experiment things are going to go wrong yeah so we know that Ullman's brain and Strauss's brain are extracted because we see them in the jars in the laboratory. Awesome. So they're done. This is where Daniel asks for Larry Talbot's body, but Neiman says that the body is the perfect home for the monster's brain. And so he denies him outright there. So then we get the monster is the Wolfman. That's pretty cool. Like the monster's brain in the Wolfman's body? Correct. That's the plan. That's a that's a cool mashup. I'd like to see that. That would be amazing. But it doesn't get there, unfortunately. Ilanka yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is kind of wandering around the, the castle. Uh, why she just kind of like waltzes right into the lab, I don't really understand. But she has her final like confrontation with Daniel. This relationship dissolves within a matter of minutes. He, he confronts her about her, her feelings for, for Larry. And she, to her credit, she doesn't hide them. You know, she doesn't lie about it. She's very upfront. When he kind of reacts violently uh, to that news, she turns on him immediately, calls him a monster, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And man, one of my favorite parts of the movie, Daniel starts reciting the werewolf poem. Yes, his way of sabotaging that whole relationship is to reveal to her that he's a werewolf. Yeah, the look for the pentagram and plant all these ideas in her head, but they're true. It's the truth. But yeah, she's like, ah, if I didn't 
hate you before, I really hate you now. She's the perfect person to believe that story because she comes from this tribe of gypsies. That's where the whole thing started. So if anyone's going to believe just on face value that somebody is a, is a werewolf, it's Ilanka. Yeah, man. And Daniel is just destroyed. Like, he is just crushed by this. And he was just trying to help. Like, he's the only honest one here, really. Aside from Larry just being like, kill me, kill me. No shit. We know. We know. <laughs> he's like, to the doctor, he's like, I just killed four guys for you. And the doctor's like, well, I'm Welshing on our bet and all that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so he takes out all of this anger on the monster and he just goes in there when the monster's dormant basically like he's uncharged i guess at the moment and he just starts whipping the shit out of the monster i was like wow that scene is heavy super heavy he's just realizing he's not going to get anything he wants uh he's not going to get the girl he's not going to get the body he wants and just that resentment boils over and i think that's a, a powerful scene that might be his finest performance in the whole movie but now the full moon starts to rise larry has the first werewolf transformation we will see or at least first transformation from man into wolf and you know like they've got this down right there's no reinventing the wheel here we get a great transformation a little bit later it's in the same shot yeah isn't this we follow the footprints and then it's the reveal and he looks awesome yes in that shot with like the full moon and like the clearing of trees and stuff just so awesome that shot reminds me of the first transformation we see in werewolf of london when we see henry hull like walk past those columns and each time he passes one like we get little more of the transformation like they use those those cuts there whereas here it's all one fluid take and i'm sure it's a stunt actor like a body double as the wolfman because it's the shot starts with lon cheney jr and the, the camera tilts tilts down to his bare feet. He walks out of frame. We follow the footsteps and then the camera tilts back up and we see a wolf man all in one continuous shot. That is just as clever, if not more so than the Henry Hall transformation, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's why I didn't mind that we're just seeing it done with footprints because the camera technique really drew me into it. Like it didn't even make me think oh i'm not seeing him transform in front of my eyes we got to see him transform back when he came out of the ice so i don't feel gypped and especially mm -hmm. since we're going to get a great transformation later i thought this was a really interesting way to do one yeah i think this is again we can't praise cinematographer george robinson enough i think that this was a brilliant efficient way to shoot that scene definitely cost effective so yeah i think it works on all levels like it's it's artistic and it's a nice cost-saving measure there so love this shot so we cut to like a local tavern right like we love these tavern sequences so this is viseria but these are characters that we haven't seen before they're all just kind of hanging out chit-chatting gossiping about what's been going on apparently this guy strauss has been reported missing Ullman also has been missing yeah, and this lady calls like and said that her husband hasn't come home last night either. And the inspector and the burgermeister happen to be at the bar when this news comes in. And so this is where the villagers learn about a murder, that there's been a man attacked, looks like by a werewolf, right? So now, okay, so this is like the inciting incident that starts to whip everybody into like the frenzy that will culminate in the torch and pitchfork mob right i love it too because they go out to investigate and see the dead body and clearly like they're all like it's a werewolf it's gotta be a werewolf like look at this thing it's a werewolf and again the burgermeister's like let's all just cool it don't cause a panic it might not be a werewolf i'm not even sure werewolves exist and everyone else is like it was a werewolf he's like fine mob up 
Go for it. Three teams. All right. We're going to do a triple mob this time. Like everyone search for the werewolf. <laughs> I love that this town of Assyria that's well, had so much trouble with like Frankenstein and these creatures that he's, he's created. And like someone says werewolf and they're like, don't be silly. You know, like they know there's a dead werewolf up there. It's like only a matter of time. You know, it's like the same with the mummy at the bottom of the lake in the last movie. It's like it's only a matter of time before they drain the lake and that mummy comes crawling out again. Yeah, these people should be well prepared for this or at least be willing to believe it without proof. So back to Larry. And this is where he and Alanka have kind of like the talk about the truth of Larry, that he will become a, a werewolf again that evening because there's going to be another full moon. Alanka desperately wants to help. He knows there's nothing she can do. Yeah. She recites the poem. Yes. And it's like, yes, it's true. I, I really am the werewolf. But she's like, yeah, Dan told me, but I don't trust him. And he's like, I just want peace or else I'll, I'm going to kill again. And there's nothing I can do. And then they talk about how the only way to kill the werewolf is for him to be shot with a silver bullet by someone that loves him. Right. Which, is that a new detail? Am I forgetting that from, from the past? Wasn't that in the original one? His dad bludgeoned him with a silver-tipped cane. But I think it had to be in silver and a loved one. I think that was a combination. That sounded new to me, that the person had to be. What I love here is that Alanka, like on her own, smiths her own silver bullet. Yes, that was great. I was like, this is awesome. She knows how to like create her own silver bullets. So she's sitting there in front of the anvil, just hammering it out. So I love that. So she's prepared to do whatever is necessary. She loves Larry, but she understands his pain and is ready to be the one to end it for him if need be. So now the following night, Dr. Neiman and Daniel are in the lab continuing their experiments. This time their goal is to resurrect the monster. At this point, he still just has his brain he came with. But I think the idea is to get him back to life just to make sure that they can do that before they start cutting people open and switching brains around. Yeah, I think they have to charge him up, right? Yeah. And I guess I guess if any brain is going to go in the garbage, it's going to be whatever's left of Bella's or Igor's brain for that matter, right? Is it still Igor's it's, brain? It should still be Igor's brain, yep. I love that. But then Larry bursts in again. He's like, do me first. He's like, I'll kill you. But then the doc's like... It's perfect logic. He's like, you can't kill me. If, you know, I'm the only one who knows how to do this. Right. What are you going to do? He kind of throws Larry out of the lab, continues his work with the monster. Meanwhile, outside, the mob, the angry mob is still out there uh, searching for this wolf man. They're full torch and pitchfork mode. They hear like all the equipment going off at the lab too. So they're like, oh shit. Yes. They, somebody notices a light on over at the Frankenstein place. <laughs> Perfect. And they're like, hang on a second. And now like everything just sort of starts to culminate on the lab, right? I'll try to keep everything straight. There's only a few, like maybe like 10 more minutes left in this movie. The villagers are descending on the laboratory. Ilanka decides that she's going to make one last plea with Larry, but he doesn't want to see her. And so she takes her pistol and walks around to the outside window where she hopes to fire the death blow. As that's happening, Neiman is ready for Larry. But by this point, the moon is rising and he is about to begin his transformation. There's that great transformation in, in the mirror. Uh, Alanka, standing outside with her pistol, is ready to shoot him. And then at the last second, kind of chickens out. I think she's become so overwhelmed with emotion that she just can't do it. Yeah, I think she might be scared out of her mind, too finally seeing like sure. the actual transformation happen in front of her yeah that was crazy and then the wolf 
Wolfman comes crashing out of yes. the glass-plated door. I was like, whoa, that was amazing. I love that. Because I think that the Wolfman doesn't get much credit for how strong he is. We see him like choke out people usually, but to see him burst through a window, like, like, like through a wall is just super cool. Yeah, this whole sequence is so well done. Like when she goes to plead to Larry and she knows she has the bullet or the cure. Larry sort of accepting his fate, I guess, at this point, where it's like, nothing can help me. I'm doomed, I'm doomed. And her knowing that she is going to put him down for good. And I love how this all plays out too, where they kind of take each other out. Yes, he takes off into the night and she runs after him. And then he kind of like sneaks from behind a hedge. We hear the gunshot from behind a different obstruction, like another hedge. We see the smoke from the gun in the air. And yeah, he, he has done like some fatal damage to her, but she's also managed to fire the successful shot into him, killing him. And so they have this like moment where she's not quite dead. She crawls over to him while he's like, like his lifeless body. She flips him over and just sort of like they have this moment together where they are going to die. It was really poignant. Very well done here. I, I really liked their fate at the end that they, they're both taken out at the same time. Before she's even cold, Daniel appears, he witnesses their final moments together, and then grabs Alonka and carries her back into the lab. Apparently, he says she was the only thing he ever loved. And so I don't know what his plans are for Alonka at this point. Yeah, it's probably like bring her back to life. Potentially. But uh, this is like the breaking point for Daniel. He turns on Neiman and says like, none of this would have happened if you had just done what you said you were going to do. I served you well. Like, I've killed all these people for you, and I've, I've gotten absolutely nothing. And now you're going to join them, he says. So he's choking out Dr. Neiman. The Frankenstein monster, now conscious, sees this happening and bursts out of his, like, confinements. He's strapped to that table, right? So he just breaks out of all of that. And he, he approaches Daniel and, like, just manhandles the hell out of him and just throws him out of, like, what, a second or third story window. That is the greatest. He, like, throws him out of a window and Daniel, like, tumbles down the roof and off of the house. <laughs> it's such an unelegant stunt. Like, if you watch Glenn Strange pick up J. Carroll Nash and then throw him through the window. It's like his whole body. He's using his whole body to just like shatter that glass. Yeah, it's not graceful at all, but it's totally effective. <laughs> Before that, we get some cool shadow play. That's when uh, Daniel's trying to strangle Karloff, but then the monster strangles Daniel and picks him up and everything. And it's all played out on shadows on the wall. I imagine that was to like get around the sensors. I think if they can show something in silhouette, then they can avoid, you know, having to cut things out for gratuitous violence or whatever. Yeah. But it ends up being a really strong creative choice as well. I really love the silhouettes. I think they look really good on screen. Yeah, absolutely. And so Neiman is not dead. He does manage to save Neiman. But as he like picks Neiman up, the villagers come in with their torches. Monster is, of course, terrified of fire. And so he, he takes Neiman with him and gets the hell out and, and just heads off into the marshes, the nearby marshes. Oh, man, this poor monster. Like he wakes up and like 10 minutes later, there's another freaking mob chasing him. <laughs> yep. He can't catch a break. So the, or so the villagers like set fire to the marshes, right? They oh, so much fire, Dan. I I was so scared for the actors. It, it looked like there was a moment in the shot where they're like, 
set fire, right? And they're like, all right. And then they're like, whoa, uh oh, <laughs> too much fire. It is some of the most fire I have seen in one of these movies. It is all the fire, we can just say. I mean, I think Ghost of Frankenstein might give this one a run for its money because it was a house on fire. Right. But this is a lot of fire to have out in the middle of nothing in the woods. So yeah, really cool effect. But the monster like carries Neiman into this quicksand, I guess by accident. And so we watch them both just sink down into this quicksand. And I love how long Karloff keeps his head afloat for just like a few seconds. Like he knows it's coming and then just finally submerges. And then that's it. That's the end. It is so abrupt. I wonder if there was a thing going on where it's like the villains have to die sort of on their own accord or like by their own fault like you can't have the villager kill Karloff in cold blood on camera so he has to sink in quicksand or something or like you can't kill the mummy you have to have the mummy sink in a bog the level of violence or like the implications of the hero sort of murdering at the end of the movie might be a little too much and so that's why possibly they have all these weird contrived ways of the bad guys sort of like accidentally dying at the end of these movies recently i would have been fine if I don't know, they tripped or something and the monster fell on them first or I don't know, they fell off a cliff. It's just a little weird at the end when you hear Karloff going, no, quicksand, quicksand. I just wish somehow, some way there was a chance to set that up just like 10 minutes earlier some way. Just like, careful, man, there's quicksand in these woods. Right, 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 right. Otherwise, it's so in line with the tone of the rest of the film that it's just like, and we're done. Yep. And it's the second movie in a row that we've seen where it ends with the monster carrying somebody into the swamp. Couldn't believe it. So to touch on your point about how like the villains of these movies kind of have to be the makers of their own ends. It's been quite a while since we talked about it, but I want to say that once the production code authority really got a foothold over American movie censorship, they insisted on these movies, like these horror movies, which have much more colorful, bigger, colorful villains, just because for like religious reasons, Maybe they wanted to have these villains be responsible for their own fate, you know, as sort of like a morality tale, like kind of a like if you're going to fuck around, you're going to find out sort of thing. Uh-huh. I'd be surprised if this wasn't part of something like that, where they really wanted these villains to, to meet their ends by their own actions. Makes sense to me, because then it's like, hey, don't try it. Yeah, because it's not going to work. You yeah. know, just look at this guy. He tried it. Look where he is, you know, suffocating in quicksand. Is that what you want? I'm just now realizing how few legitimate heroes are in these movies with that in mind. You don't need to have like a Van Helsing anymore because these guys are going to make choices that ultimately doom themselves, which is strange. Yeah, you just have to sort of keep getting in their way uh, and like annoying them. And then eventually they'll slip up or it'll get to a point where, yeah, it gets out of control you know, and they'll take themselves out. But it's still fun to watch everyone try, right? Everyone try and think that they can actually save the day somehow. Right. That is House of Frankenstein. Is there is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? You know, ordinarily, I would have thought that this would have bothered me more the way 
Dracula is underused and, you know, it feels like two separate movies and, all you know, all the shortcomings and stuff. But I actually think that it enhanced my viewing of this, okay? Because I was expecting this to be a little more straightforward and everything to come together and be more closely knit. I was enjoying, I was like, how is this going to go? Like, this is completely against, like, the type of structure I was expecting. Like, it really started to feel, you know, especially after the end of the Dracula segment, I was like, this feels like almost like Tales from the Crypt, right? Or like, uh, if we had one more segment, quote unquote, with like a mummy or something, I could have felt that. I ended up really enjoying it. You know, we get a really solid, very quick vampire. I'm not going to say Dracula necessarily, Mm -hmm. but vampire story. And we get a great sort of mini sequel to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. The acting is amazing here. I think this is so far one of my favorite Karloff films. I think he's amazing in this. And yeah, I just had a really great time watching it. Yeah, I agree. I think that, like we said with The Mummy's Ghost, if we wanted to introduce somebody to a mummy movie, like that would be a good one to show them because it kind of does all the stuff we've come to know and love about a mummy movie all together in one film. But I don't know that I could say the same for this. I feel like this one really depends on having a familiarity with these characters. You know, I think the reason we're able to like this so much is because because we have spent so much time with these characters up to now. But if you were to show this to somebody who had never seen a Frankenstein, Wolfman, or Dracula movie, I think it would be underwhelming. I think that you don't get really enough of these characters to, to satisfy just by itself. You know what I mean? Like you need to have that history with these characters. But uh, if these are characters that you've spent a lot of time watching, as we have, then you don't really need to go super in-depth with them. You have like a shorthand to fill in the blanks or fill in the gaps that the movie doesn't necessarily shed that light on. So yeah, with that in mind, I think that this is just a really fun, solid monster mashup for fans of the franchise. I like this more now that I've talked about it than I did when I watched it because I do think it's fun I I know at the beginning of the show I kind of said that the script had like a lazy an inherent laziness to it Um, and I still think that that's true but like I I realize how that could come across and I really want to emphasize that at least having spoken about it for the past couple hours with you I really do think this is a lot of fun and that this is like the sort of comfort monster movie that I would put on yeah definitely yeah and I agree like you know you do have to sort of do some homework before this movie. Uh, it's like one of the late stage, like phase four Marvel movies. Yeah. Like it kind of feels a little like that. But if you're into that, like we are, you know, if you love these monsters and you just want to see like every little bit that you can, I, I feel like they do a good job of giving you enough. Like if you like us are following along and want to see more of this, you'll take whatever you can get. And I was more than happy to take what they gave me. The thing for me that was the most lacking was the interpretation of Dracula, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it on some level. You know, it's still a lot of fun. Not 100% accessible, like right out of the gate, but if you are a big fan of these movies, I think you'll have a lot of fun with this one. This is like a greatest hits compilation, right? So it's going to give you kind of the best of everything kind of minus the characterization of Dracula. We've talked about this a couple times already. You know, that might be the weak spot, but I mean, you're still going to get Dracula doing Dracula things. You're going to get the Frankenstein monster. You're going to get Larry Talbot being Larry Talbot, and you're going to get some Wolfman stuff. Like you're going to get a little bit of everything that you've come to know and love about these characters over the years. So it does deliver in that way. 
And yeah, so I think that wraps it up for me. Me too. So I think with that, we will sink down into some quicksand of our own. Uh, Where'd that come from? We will be back on Friday, August 26th for some more Lon Chaney mummy action in 1944's The Mummy's Curse. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and you can find all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs>